0: Thanks, Nick. appreciate that. There may be uh, some unfamiliar songs in there. If you listen to KSLT, probably you've heard and know most of those, but they're great songs. We've been doing a study of uh, 2 Corinthians following Jesus in a messy world. So grab your Bibles, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, We're looking at verses 1 through 6. And they say this. Now I, Paul, myself... Urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence which with which I propose to be courageous against some, who regard us as if we walk according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Father God, we thank you again for the opportunity we have to be together, to join our hearts, our minds, in worship to you. Uh, Lord, we pray now that you would speak to us through your word. Encourage, challenge, strengthen, rebuke, exhort, do the things, God, that you want to do in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I know... uh, You know, in the recent decades, there's been kind of a resurgence of interest in this whole idea of spiritual uh, warfare. Uh, It seemed to really take off here a couple decades ago uh, when Frank Peretti published his book, This Present Darkness. I don't know how many of you have uh, read that or heard of that. It's a pretty fun uh, story to read, kind of spooky, kind of tense, you know, and the good guys are good and the bad guys are bad, uh, the way it's supposed to be. But I think some people, maybe, as they read that book, they they kind of forgot that it's a work of fiction. Uh, And they took uh, Paredes' description of uh, spiritual warfare, of of Christians directly battling with demons as as being biblically correct theology. And, you know, it, it does make for entertaining read, but I think it's confused many people about what it means for the Christian to be engaged in spiritual warfare. And we need to make no mistake about it. As Christians, the Bible makes it clear that we are soldiers and that we are in a battle. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. When you become a Christian, You become part of the family of God, right? You are in a family. You have brothers and sisters. You're part of a brotherhood that you can count on. When you become a Christian, you become part of the body of Christ, an individual part of the body, and every individual part has to function, and so that the body as a whole can work together the way it's supposed to. But when you become a Christian, you also become a soldier. You are enlisted by God to be in his army. And maybe you think, well, you know, he's talking to, to Timothy here, and Timothy was a pastor, uh, just like Paul was a missionary and pastor and stuff. So maybe this soldier thing is just for those people who, who like go into full-time Christian ministry and, and work and that type of thing. But it's not. I just want you to know that every single Christian is a soldier. When Paul was in prison in Rome, the Philippian church decided to send him a financial gift to help with his needs. You know, in those days, when when someone was put in uh, in prison, the prison only provided very minimal care. They didn't really care if you died in the jail cell. Uh, if you wanted to be taken care of friends or relatives, family members, would have to come in and bring you food and clothing and and this type of thing. And uh, Paul didn't have friends and relatives and whatnot in Rome, and so the Philippian church, uh, in his time of need and distress, decided, we want to send this guy a financial gift and help him out. And... um, Remember, the Philippian church was one of the Macedonian churches that we had looked back in chapters 8 and 9, one of those poor Macedonian churches. But in spite of that, they, they wanted to help Paul. And so they were going to send him some money. But you know, Western Union... Uh, wasn't in operation yet, and and so there was no simple way to wire the guy some money. And and so the only way for it to get there for him was for someone to make this long and dangerous journey and hand deliver it and take care of Paul. And the church selected a guy named Epaphroditus. And there is no indication that Epaphroditus was a pastor or a teacher uh, or a leader of any kind in the church. He was simply a trustworthy guy who could do a physical job. His ministry was to be a courier taking the church's financial gift to Paul. But look at the way Paul describes him in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. He says, but I thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger and minister to my need. See, so the the Philippian church sent him to Paul to deliver the money and to take care of him, but now Paul was sending him back to the church because the church had heard that Epaphroditus got really sick and nearly died in in carrying out this ministry for them, and they were all worried about him. And so because they were worried, Paul says, hey, I'm going to send him back uh, to you guys and, and, and do that. But the point is, Paul called him a fellow soldier, this guy whose ministry was simply Carrying the money there and taking care of Paul. We're all soldiers. That's, that's what is taught in Scripture. As a little kid, I don't know about you, but I sang uh, you know, the song in Sunday school, I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery, right? I may never fly over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. You know what? That is a biblically and theologically correct song. Every believer is in the Lord's army. But we need to make sure we understand what it means to be a soldier for Christ. I mean, you may have heard of something called the Crusades back in medieval times, right? There's actually a number of them that happened over hundreds of years, this type of thing. But, but the most famous ones were where the Catholic Church armed soldiers sent them into battle a, a against the Muslims in an attempt to regain uh, the Holy Land and, and Jerusalem. And it was all about trying to take by physical force land and, and political power and of course forced conversions to the church. That is not at all what the Bible is talking about when it says we are soldiers called to battle. When Paul summed up his, his uh, life by saying, I have fought the good fight, he had not once raised a single sword in combat, right? In saying that we are soldiers, it is not Uh, Saying that we are involved in any physical type of war at all. Instead, God has called us to a spiritual battle. And and that's most clearly enunciated in Ephesians chapter 6. And in verse 11, it it says, uh, where we're commanded, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So you're called to put on that full armor. I mean, that's the gear that a soldier wears when they're going into battle. But notice that the battle is not against uh, other people, it's against the schemes of the devil and the purpose of your armor so that you can stand firm against those schemes. And, and a, in case a person didn't pick that up there, that it's not against people, it's against these things, he just repeats the idea, explains it more fully in verse 12 where he says, but our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the uh, uh, um, he- uh, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So it's a, it's a spiritual war. And the words in that verse of rulers and powers and world forces of this darkness, that refers to the demonic influences that work in this world, summed up by that title, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So, we are in a battle, and we are soldiers. And and having established that, let's go back then to our passage here in 2 Corinthians. And, And for this passage to make complete sense to us, let's call to mind again the whole context of the letter. Remember what was going on. Uh, the church as a whole that, that Paul had established there in Corinth had pretty much turned their back on him because of the influence of some false teachers who had infiltrated that church. And, and, and uh, this broke Paul's heart, but to try to remedy this situation, he made a quick trip out to the church, and that did not turn out well. The, the The false teachers were entrenched and had it there, and it was a heartbreaking experience. And so Paul left again, and after that, he had written a very strongly worded letter called the severe letter, uh, challenging them to, to repentance. And, and through that letter, they did. Uh, after months of anxious waiting, uh, Titus brought back word to, to, to Paul that, that, they, that the church by and large the the bulk of the church had repented and returned to him and and, and that just was such a relief to paul and, and the first seven chapters of second corinthians really deal with the the, uh, the ramifications of that um reestablished relationship between paul and the church and, and because of that reestablished uh, relationship then in chapters 8 and 9 he's able to feel free to talk about this this promised financial offering. They had promised to take an offering for the destitute saints in, in Jerusalem. So he reminded them about that and talked to them about that in, in 8 and 9. And now we get to the final section of the book, chapters 10 through 13, and Paul's language once again becomes a very strong, confrontational, and authoritative. And, and, and what's likely causing that is is that the the people that had been... Causing the problem. These false teachers had had very likely not left the church when the church as a whole uh, repented, but instead just kind of went underground and and were biding their time until they thought they could have another opportunity in order to attack Paul and regain their control over the church. And and so Paul knew that uh, those people had to be rooted out and dealt with, or trouble would erupt in the church. Uh, the truth is turning a blind eye to or or ignoring uh, sinful, divisive uh, behavior in the church, it's not loving and kind. It's not loving and kind to those people. It's not loving and kind to the church because that would sit there and fester in the church and poison uh, the body. And and, and instead of having a healthy body, then you'd end up with a sickly poisoned uh, body of the church. And and, and so uh, in these final four chapters... Paul is aiming these words at that minority that has not yet repented and, and is, is uh, holding out like this. And so Paul starts this mission to root out uh, uh, this small minority of rebellion with a little bit of sanctified sarcasm. And uh, 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 look, at, look at verse 1. He says, "'Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ.'" I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. Okay, so here's the thing. Apparently, these false teachers had been trying to discredit Paul by claiming that he was a wimp when he was there face to face with people. But sure, when he's at a safe distance and, and gone by letter, oh well, yeah, then he can act like he's all tough and, and powerful and, and really stern with you. You know, shortly after DJ and I were married, we obtained a little dog that we named Snickers, okay? And uh, Snickers, when she held her head up high, might have been 10 inches tall. Uh, uh, and, and one day, Fernando and I borrowed a truck so we could go out and get a, lood- a, a big load of a manure. And uh, since it was a borrowed pickup, Fernando wanted me to drive, so we're driving. And, and, and uh, <laughs> when we got out to the feed lot. Uh, you know, there was the, the herd of cows there. And, oh, Snickers hopped up on my lap and starts growling like she's some big, tough dog. So I thought, well, I'm going to drive over closer to them and roll down the window so she can hear them. And, and so I got there and rolled down the window, and she immediately whimpered, tucked her tail, and ran over to Fernando to pro- to, so he could protect her. Okay? She was really tough when she was in the safety of an enclosed pickup <coughs> cab, Right? But as soon as she was close and exposed, oh, she tucked tail and ran. Okay, that's what these guys are saying Paul is like. Yeah, oh yeah, sure, he's tough when he's a long ways away in writing a letter. But you bring him face to face and he just whimpers and, and tucks his tail. So Paul, you know, turns the table on them and says, hey, you know who else was gentle and meek? You you may have heard of him, this guy named Jesus, and and I'm okay to be meek like him. Uh, Just like today, back in that day, a lot of people equated meekness, gentleness, with weakness. Jesus himself described uh, himself as gentle and meek, and yet he wasn't the least bit weak. These Corinthians, they would not have had the benefit of the New Testament to read like like we do, but they would have heard the stories of Jesus Christ while He was here on earth, driving the greedy hucksters out of the temple with a whip, casting demons out of people, uh, exerting the power of God over nature, calming storms, walking on the water. Jesus was not weak. And Paul was saying, hey, don't confuse, don't confuse meekness with weakness. And with that in mind, he goes on in verse 2, I ask that when I am present, I don't need to be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some, What's the some there, who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. So Paul could be bold and courageous in person if needed to be, but he preferred not to be, right? Uh, As an apostle of Christ, he held authority over the church, but he didn't want to come in brandishing a rod of iron and just bashing the people like this. He preferred that gentle approach of instruction and teaching and and allowing the people to to repent and to respond appropriately. That's what he would like to see happen. And this verse of of reading this, this whole letter... Would be read aloud to the entire church. But notice again, the target uh, of this audience is that small minority of people that that had yet repented. Paul described them as some. There are some still holding out there. And, and another way this small group uh, tried to disparage Paul was by claiming that he walked according to the flesh. Okay? Now uh, that's a way of saying that he was not following God or being obedient to him. Rather, he was living by his own selfish and sinful impulses of the natural man. If you want a very simple uh, definition of, of the flesh in here, a natural man is, is a person without Jesus Christ. spiritual man is a person who has Jesus accepted Jesus Christ and has the Holy Spirit living in him. That's The biblical difference. That's the whole definition. And uh, uh, a natural man might be real religious, okay? Uh, They might be all in on spirituality and who knows what all else. But that doesn't make any difference how religious you are. You do not have Jesus Christ in your life, You don't have that personal relationship with Him. That's what makes the difference between a natural man and, and, and a spiritual man. And the natural man walks in the flesh. That's what they have. They live their life according to the natural way of doing things. And, and, and so the New Testament writers use that word flesh to speak of that manner of living that totally uh, disregarded the ways of God. It, it was that natural way of living uh, since... All people are naturally sinful. And uh, when, when, as a Christian, if you respond to something in, in the normal, natural way without the power or the presence or the teaching of Christ guiding you at all, then, then you are responding according to the flesh. You're living a, as a natural man. And that's what these false teachers were accusing Paul of, of being in the flesh, and Paul then used a bit of wordplay play to, to defend himself against that accusation in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. So now he's using the word flesh in two different ways. He's, he's using it in the normal Greek understanding way. It refers to your body. Flesh means your muscle, your blood, bone, and skins, right? And he says, yeah, we walk in the flesh. We're people. We're humans just like you. But. Even though we're humans like you, we do not war according to the flesh. He uh, understood that this is a spiritual warfare that was going on here. And that's where verse 4 comes in. For the weapons. Of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Paul's weapons were not physical weapons, sword and bow and arrows, nor were they the fleshly weapons of human ingenuity, worldly philosophy, lies, deceit, uh, accusations, slander, uh, the types of things that these false teachers were using. His weapons, he says, were divinely powerful. And these weapons, at least right here, are not described for us because they're understood by what they do. And we'll look at what they are because they are described other places. But, but let's look at what they do. What do they do? According to, to, to this verse, it says that they destroy fortresses. Therefore, the destruction of fortresses. All his readers would have been familiar with the idea of a fortress. I mean, it would bring to idea this heavily reinforced stronghold with, with major defenses around it. Every Greek city, every major Greek city anyways, had an, an Acropolis, okay? And, and an Acropolis was on a hill either in the city or, or very near the city, and it was a fortified structure into which the residents could flee in case they were under attack. And the natural man... The man without God, well, they've built up many fortified fortresses in their life to protect them from the spiritual influences of God. And these fortresses can only be destroyed by the divinely powerful weapons that God has provided. And Paul goes on kind of to specify what he means by these fortresses and and, and us being able to destroy them in the next verse, verse 5. We are destroying, what are these fortresses? We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So the fortresses that he destroys, they're speculations and every lofty thing Raised up against the knowledge of God. Speculations refers to human thoughts and opinions and reasonings and philosophies and theories and perspectives. Uh, Lofty things would be any unbiblical system, and if it's unbiblical, it's spawned by Satan. Any unbiblical system promoted by man, such as ideologies, false religions, even pseudo- Gospels presented in the name of Christianity. All those things that are raised up as the truth, but in reality are in opposition to the Word of God. Those, those are what he's destroying. And so right there, that tells you what the emphasis of true spiritual warfare is. It's not so much running around and trying to confront demons. It is a battle for the minds of people who are held captive by the lies that are exalted as truth in this world in opposition to Scripture. That's spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is combating those citadels of falsehoods with the powerful truth of God's Word. And, And those weapons that we use for that are described In Ephesians 6, that same place that talks about the armor that we have to wear uh, as we go into battle also gives us our weapons. For instance, it says, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. You know, you think of a shield uh, as part of the armor, in a sense it is, but it's also a weapon. I mean, didn't you ever watch Captain America? I mean, that shield go? No, okay, so that's a different kind of shield. Uh, these, these were big shields, but they were used in the battle as both a weapon, defensive weapon, and an offensive weapon. But it, along with that, it says, uh, and, and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Okay? We have to have that offensive weapon in our arsenal. And finally, says, with all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the Spirit. Those are the weapons that we fight with. Faith, the truth of God's Word, and prayer. So, you know, might we confront demons in this world? Well, you know, it's certainly possible. Demons are real. They are the enemy of God, and therefore they're the enemy of God's people. But by and large, as you study the Bible, you see that demons work behind the scenes, pushing people into false ways of thinking and false ways of believing. And and so the spiritual warfare that I can guarantee each and every true Christian will be involved in is confronting those worldly fortresses of false systems and false beliefs that have so many people trapped inside of them. That's spiritual warfare. Paul knew those fortresses well. Before becoming a Christian, he had his own fortress. It was one of religious traditions and works righteousness as long as he did all the right traditions and rituals and and had a bunch of good works well hey then god's going to be all right with me and you know what there's a lot of people that are still holding up in that same fortress today isn't they it's a fortress of religion of doing certain things Satan's provided a plethora of fortresses for people today, an endless supply of New Age philosophies, cults, world religions. Maybe maybe one of his most popular strongholds, at least here in the United States right now, is evolutionary naturalism. Naturalism is a system or a philosophy that says you don't need God. In fact, God doesn't exist. The only thing that exists in this world uh, are the physical things, animals, rocks, molecules, whatever. If you can't see it with a microscope or or a telescope, then it's just myth, at least according to naturalism. It's a false system. It's a fortress that many people have fled to in an attempt to, To keep God out. And the objective of our warfare is to break down those fortresses so that people can be free. You know, it's interesting to me, I I didn't know this until I was doing research this week. That word fortress can also be used of a prison or a tomb. And these people build up their fortresses around them. I don't need God. I've got my own spirituality. I've got my own religion. I've got my own beliefs. I don't need God. I've got science and whatever it is. They're building up their fortresses. In reality, they're locking themselves in prison. And if it's not broken down, it'll become their tomb. And there's only one way it's broken down. God has given us the divinely powerful weapons for the destruction of those fortresses. Weapons of faith, the truth of God's word, and prayer. So I have just one final question for you. How familiar are you with your weapons? Imagine Imagine a soldier being sent out in the desert of Iraq to fight against ISIS. The sergeant comes along and hands him an AK-47. He kind of holds it and goes, I don't know what to do with this. Wouldn't be much of a soldier, would he? You have to know your weapon. You have to know how to use it. You have to be so familiar with it, it's just natural in your hands. We're in a spiritual battle. How how familiar are you with your weapons? Faith. The truth of God's Word. Prayer. Take the opportunities that you have to familiarize. You know, how you, you know how you get familiar with faith? You do stuff that goes beyond your own abilities and your own power where you have to trust God. You know the Word of God? You need more than just a Sunday morning sermon. Are you in it during the week? Prayer. we We, we can pray... On our own all the time, we should be, but boy, there's power in praying together. Take advantage of those opportunities. BLT, small groups, there's a prayer group that meets just for prayer. Tuesday nights at Mr. Henningsen's house, there's another one that meets Thursday at noon at Stay USA. Be a part of those. Get familiar with your weapons because you are in a battle. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for your word, which does provide us what we need. We're thankful that in Jesus Christ, we have everything we need for life and godliness, including what we need for every battle. So God, we pray that you would strengthen us for the task at hand for the days ahead, and that we would suffer hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all stand and join us in our last song?